because without solid foundations, it's like a house. Say you build your house on sand and soggy ground and your house crumbles and everything falls down. So you build your house on really healthy, solid foundations. And then you might have a storm or two. You might have a breakup. You might have someone who mistreats you, but your house stands tall and you're ready to try again. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Averill. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Averill. We're picking back up with Katherine Baldwin, author of How to Fall in Love, A 10-Step Journey to the Heart. If you haven't had a chance to listen to part one, please jump back to episode 205 to hear Katherine share how her anxious and avoidant attachment style caused her to struggle as she tried to cultivate intimate romantic partnerships. We continue our conversation with Katherine Baldwin right after this. I'd love to connect with you via my weekly newsletter. Joining the Love and Life email list ensures you're the first to know everything going on in the Love and Life family. You'll receive insider perk pricing for consultations and events, and it's the best way to keep in touch when I do what the research suggests is very healthy and take breaks from social media. Subscribe on my website, loveandlifemedia.com. And as a bonus, you'll get my free Empowered Dating Playbook. Intuition is something that I think a lot about. And I know there's more and more psych research about it. We certainly don't fully understand the brain, the mind in any way, shape, or form. We're just beginning to scratch the surface. And I've heard about women's intuition that perhaps that we have a, a greater corpus callosum, which is the part of the brain that that connects the hemispheres so that women may have a greater number of messages that are going from the left brain, the, the logical part to the right brain, which is the more intuitive part. I don't know if that's the case. I just stumbled upon some of that research, but I share it to think about. I love to ground our work that we do with the folks we work with in science whenever we can. But at the same time, sometimes the science isn't there yet. And intuition is something I hear a lot about. People ask me a lot about because it certainly was a huge part of my life. It was the part that caused me to run away from the altar with my first engagement. That gut feeling just, I kept trying to stuff it. I kept trying to convince myself what my intuition refused to let me ultimately convince myself of. So when you look at intuition, how do you help someone who, who may say to you, well, Catherine, you know what it's like to grow up in a dysfunctional family. You know what it's like to have a history of self-harm, eating disorders. How can I trust my intuition when I have been so unkind to myself, where I haven't been able to even trust myself with myself? Mm. How do I now learn to trust my intuition? Mm. It's a great question. And I ask in my book and in a lot of the work I do, is it my fear or is it my intuition? And I think that is a crucial question to ask because often we go, oh, that's definitely my intuition. That's definitely my intuition. My intuition says, get out of this relationship. Now that could be your fear. 
and and you mentioned fears and and some of my fears were well there were so many I could go on for 10 minutes about my fears but fear of commitment fear of intimacy fear of making the wrong choice fear of loving and losing fear that he would find out that I wasn't a good person that I'm not good enough so many fears so important work I think is to try and separate fear and intuition and we do that by as you say if we've had a difficult childhood I mean, one specific thing, which which I am definitely familiar with and some people might relate to, if in your childhood you have an intuitive thought or feeling and you voice that to the adults around you and they knock you down or dismiss you or undermine you or say, you don't have that. No, that's not true. If you say to your parents, I don't like you doing that thing that you're doing, because you intuitively as a child, you don't like that. You don't feel safe. And they say, oh, there's nothing wrong with this. This isn't bad. Then you think, oh, my intuition isn't right. I can't trust my intuition. And I definitely had that wound. I can't trust my intuition. And I think we have to build up that trust in our intuition. So one thing is we spend time with our intuition. So that means we spend time with ourselves and our feelings. And that could be meditation, journaling, slowing down, sitting still, breathing. So many of us make decisions without even sitting still for five minutes, without even connecting to the breath and breathing. So we spend time with ourselves and our feelings and we feel our feelings. And for me, feeling my feelings involved stopping binge eating, stopping binge drinking. That involved doing those things in order to feel. And then our intuition has a better chance because the channel is clear. We haven't got all this, all these sort of numbing behaviors, stuffing behaviors there. So the channel is clear. And another exercise that I do on my courses is we look through our life and where did I make an intuitive decision? And where was that a good decision? And perhaps it was against the odds. I always talk about, I bought a, a Vespa, a scooter, a motorbike when I moved to London from Brazil. And everyone was saying, all the sensible people were saying, that's a really bad idea. You'll fall off. It will get stolen. And I just knew that I wanted a Vespa. And it was the best thing I ever did. <laughs> I got my Vespa and I drove it around London for 11 years. And then I sold it for almost more money than I bought. <laughs> it was a really good decision. And so I asked people to investigate their lives. Where have you made a good choice where you have trusted your intuition? And then we look at all the examples of where we made choices where we didn't trust our intuition and what was the outcome? What was the consequence? So we do a bit of an inventory mm -hmm. of our lives. And I think it's, this is all about gathering awareness and gathering information. I always say dating is about gathering information about the other person. The first thing we want to do is gather information about ourselves. And the other part of the, the piece is to discern between intuition and fear. You need to have a really good idea of what your fears are. So, so you, when, they, when you have that question, is this my intuition or is this my fear? You have a stronger connection to your intuition. You have an awareness of, of what it feels like when your intuition, when you follow it and things go well. And when you follow it, when you don't follow it and things don't go well. And you also have a whole list of fears of 
fear of intimacy and commitment and making a mistake. And, and I just, I think armed with all this information, we have to make a better choice. And, and then we just keep going and then maybe we make a mistake. (laughs) Maybe we override our intuition. Of course we do. I did it a million times. We see all these red flags and we go, "Mm, it's okay. It'll be okay. I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) Guilty. (laughs) Been there. (laughs) Yeah. And then we learn, don't we? And we learn and we learn by doing. And I always say we learn by doing. I think it's a good idea before we do. So before we date, I think it's a good idea to build our foundations first. So intuition, self-love, self-care, self-esteem, knowing your fears, knowing your patterns. Because if we don't, do that first, then dating will be a very unpleasant experience. And then we'll be burnt. And then we might want not want to do it again. So my approach is always build your foundations. And then you can date with what I call courage, clarity, and confidence. Because without solid foundations, it's like a house. Say you build your house on sand and soggy <laughs> ground. And your house crumbles and everything falls down. So you build your house on really healthy, solid foundations. And then you might have a storm or two. You might have a breakup. You might have someone who mistreats you. But your house stands tall and you're ready to try again. There's definitely a biblical reference to building your house on on firm foundation. And your firm foundation is when you start to truly trust your intuition and to, like you said, to do that exploration of that self-worth, that self-confidence, that self-love. And I think that's really hard to, to do. It, it takes a lot of work. And I I hate thinking of just the love realm as being so full of work, but it definitely takes intentional effort. And And I guess work is like a kind of pejorative word, but why should it be? We do derive so much value in ourselves when we look at the work we've done in any kind of domain. Mm. Certainly we we should feel the same about our self-work and our our work towards being the kind of partner to establish the kind of relationships that we desire. So I think that work, we should reframe that to be a real positive thing as something that we can look at and and feel that pride because we know that we grow self-esteem when we set goals and reach them. And to your point, some of the beginning, if someone is going, okay, I'm identifying that these patterns are not, they're not serving me. They're not serving my goals. I'm recognizing that I am caught up in fear. I'm not trusting my intuition. And they can look at this as an opportunity. Then let's set some goals and let's keep it within it's hard to set a goal that you can't control. So we can't look that, oh, I, I'm, my goal is that I'll be married by next year. Well, you can't control that because we don't yeah. know when he's going to show up. So let's start with a goal that we can control, which will serve your your other goal of finding that person and meeting your person. But you said, Catherine, and I want to really punctuate it here because I've never thought of it exactly this way, that really, as you were describing fear and intuition, it was almost as if the fear will override your intuition. And if I'm hearing you correctly, from the work you've done yourself and and the work you've done with the women that you connect with and the groups and the individual consultations and therapeutic work that you do, that intuition can be trusted. It's basically trying to uncover the times that you were taught not to trust your intuition, 
by virtue of family of origin patterns, by virtue of dynamics that you couldn't control when you were young. So I love this because I feel like that in and of itself, as I was saying a moment ago, I've questioned my own intuition, obviously at times. Mm -hmm. So that tension of, can we rest and truly believe that our intuition is always right? It is always serving us. And then the goal really is to identify when the fear derails us from where our intuition knows we should be. Absolutely. So the intuition, when I do my coaching or all my courses or retreats or whatever I'm doing, and I'm sure you, you are similar, you have the answers. I say to my clients, you have the answers. We are here to facilitate you digging into yourself and finding your answers. If you should go on that date that that relationship needs to end. Even in, in your work life, that you said yes when you actually needed to have said no. You have your truth and you are the wisest person in your life. But unfortunately, our intuition has been smothered by our childhood experiences and, and a decision that we made way back when that I can't trust myself. And some of us made that decision of, I can't trust anyone else because the, maybe the adults weren't there to be trusted. I can only trust myself, so super fierce independence, but I can't trust myself. So we're lost. We're completely lost. I think if we can get back to, and it really does require a slowing down. And this was very hard for me and it's very hard for many of my clients. And I think we tend to work with busy, successful, independent, professional women and men who, and people who find it hard perhaps to slow down and spend time with themselves and their feelings and spend time trusting their intuition. But I think really that is the important work. Uncovering, taking off all these layers of stuff that we put on top of our intuition and all this self-doubt. And it's sad. It's sad when I think of, of my own life, I suppose, and, and the times that I've ignored my intuition. And the pain that I've caused myself and sometimes others. And so it is really important. And you talk about the work. And I think I said this the other day on a, on a webinar. When it comes to love and relationships, we, we feel like they should just fall from the sky. That we should meet the guy in the supermarket queue or standing in line to get a plane to go on our holidays and that it should just happen. And for many women and, and people, it doesn't just happen. And it, that's really hard to take. And then we have to think, okay, I'm going to have to put some time and effort in here. And we put so much time and effort into our work lives and money, the amount of money and time and effort we spend on developing ourselves professionally and the reluctance and resistance we have, some people have, to developing ourselves personally, emotionally, psychologically. And I think when that penny drops, and, and it definitely dropped for me, I mean, when I was spending a, a large amount of money on therapy, I had left my, well, I'd burnt out in my full-time job as a Reuters correspondent, journalist, political journalist. I had left that job. I was earning a lot less money. I was starting to change my career and retrain. But for me, it was an absolute priority. I wanted to be in a healthy and loving relationship. So that's where I put my time and my effort and my money. And it's 
it, it can be hard to accept, I think, but it's the greatest gift I gave myself. And I still invest in my personal psychological and emotional development because I love it. <laughs> I love it. And it, it helps me in all areas of my life. So it's a continuing, continuing journey. And if we can continue to work on ourselves, then our relationships will continue to flourish. And I think that's, that's really important. Thank you so much for your vulnerability. And I do want to recommend that listeners check out your book and because you, you go through so much in depth of your own childhood and how those dynamics, and you mentioned your career, which was so cosmopolitan. I mean, you were traveling all over the world, living in exotic places and that's a beautiful chapter of your life. At the same time, at one point you realize this is actually part of the problem because mm. if I'm, am I jet setting all yeah. over? Am I really creating space in my heart to start this process of beginning to examine myself and certainly to create space in my life and in my world for this connection that I deeply desire? But you're talking even about then when you met your husband. And so part of me says, okay, we may have all these dynamics. We keep working on ourselves. We're going to read the books. We'll work with coaches. We'll go to therapy. But part of it is also you meet the right person. And then things do start to sort themselves out. But in your case, you're saying, I did meet the right person. And I still walked away several times. And so that avoidant attachment was really, really coming to the surface. And maybe even more strongly coming to the surface because part of you knew this is my person. And part of you still was operating from fear and still operating from that avoidant attachment element. But how do you reconcile that element of it? How much of it was that you met this very patient man who loved you so dearly to welcome you back. I mean, a lot of guys have been like, you know what? You walk away all these times. I can't do this anymore. So as you look at the part of the the intrapersonal element and then the interpersonal between you and your husband to help us understand how that kind of worked itself out and sorted itself out. Good question. I did walk away numerous times because I wasn't ready, because I needed to do more work on myself. There is another piece and it's quite a complicated piece and it is in my book. It was when I met my husband, I was 40. He was 45. I wasn't sure where I stood on children, but I thought I wanted the opportunity of having children. And I work with lots and I'm sure you have lots of women who are childless by circumstance or possibly heading that way and they don't want to be. In there are a lot of my clients are women who are who haven't found love in time to have children. And so that was a, an element because my husband didn't want children and that's a valid reason. And it's a valid reason not to be in a relationship with someone. So that's one of the reasons I left. But what I explored with the help of a very good professional was deep down, I was actually ambivalent myself about having children. And that was a difficult journey for me to go on to understand my own ambivalence that came from how I was parented. But I was, I was unsure about having children. I was ambivalent. But I used the fact that he didn't, and I thought that I did, as, as a good reason to leave. So it was another reason not to be with him. For some people who desperately want children, 
and are sure they want children, then that's a very good reason to leave a relationship. But for me, it was more of an excuse because deep down, once I'd explored it, I was truly ambivalent about having children. And that's work that I have done and and continue to do and write a lot about ambivalence because it is something that affects a lot of people. So that was, I, so I kept walking away, but every time I met up with him again and we were in the same social group and we were doing sort of camping and festivals and things like that. When I met up with him again, I was always drawn to him physically and emotionally. He had such a peaceful, stable presence about him. And you mentioned my 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 job and and the the cosmopolitan crazy. That was part of my running away. So, and the adrenaline addiction. It was part of my detachment from my feelings. So I I did. I used to go to war zones and tsunamis and terrorist attacks and earthquakes. If you imagine that, I was just darting all over the world, basically, mm-hmm. adrenalized, busy, working very hard exhausted most of the time. So that was one of my coping mechanisms. That was one of the ways I stayed. I I avoided relationship. Mm -hmm. So when I was doing more work on myself, I stopped being attracted to people who were like that. Mm. I stopped being attracted to the war photographers and the unreliable people, unavailable people, people who were in a similar profession to me, possibly, who, who were kind of using on their work, using their work as an avoidance tactic. And I started with my husband to notice that, gosh, he's kind of stable and peaceful, which in the past would have felt boring. That's boring. (laughs) Right, right. Nice is boring, stable, reliable, all boring, because I was an adrenaline junkie who wanted fire and crazy and drama. But that, as I healed, the stability became more attractive. And I was just drawn to him by his presence, by a sense of rock solid stability, mm-hmm. reliability, which ultimately, and we end up in the relationship we need, not necessarily the relationship we think we want. I thought I wanted a war correspondent, forward correspondent, like, or an A&E doctor or an aid worker or someone living on the edge of danger, high adrenaline. That's what I thought I wanted. But actually, my healing came when I realized that I didn't need that. I needed, (laughs) I needed to lower my own adrenaline levels, get the drama out of my life, and also then be with someone who was stable and reliable and peaceful and with whom I felt safe and secure and happy. And that was my healing. Our hurt happens in relationship, our healing happens in relationship too. And in relationships, we heal and we have healed together. He probably wouldn't realize what he's been healing from or whether he's healed at all. But I know that I have healed by being able to commit, being able to marry. So I was someone I would say, although it's hard, I'll say that I found it hard to be faithful to people in the past. That was part of the drama. It was part of the avoidance. But to be in a committed marriage and to commit to fidelity and to be with someone who's there and reliable. So I suppose I kept going away, but I kept being drawn to this present. And there came a moment, I think I was 42, when I thought, well, I'm 42. I don't know if I can have children. I don't know if I actually want children because I'm doing this work around ambivalence. But here's a man who stood right in front of me 
who says that he wants to be with me. So let's give that a go. So I, I put two feet in instead of one foot out and one foot in. And I committed for a time. And we had a glorious summer and loads of fun. And it was really, really lovely. And at the end of that, I left again. <laughs> I I think I brought up the children question again. He, his position hadn't changed and he was very honest. And I left again. And then I went, I went to try and find someone else. So let me try and find a man who is all, has all the qualities that he has, but who wants children. And I couldn't find that man. And I continued to do my work around ambivalence and indecision and my childhood wounds. And I realized that for me, then at 43, what was my priority was a healthy, loving relationship. That was my priority. Now, other women decide differently. I, I've spoken to many women who decided that having a baby was their priority and they have found a way to do that on their own with someone, however they've done it. That wasn't my truth. My truth was I want to be in a healthy and loving relationship. So I committed to him at 43 and then, and, and I stayed and I, and then I was totally all in. I moved out of London to where he was living down here, the South coast of England. Very soon after that experiment worked, not long after we, we bought a house together, which was major commitment. He proposed, we got married. Yeah, I think it was a journey. <laughs> it was a whole book of a journey, but it was my healing journey. And I'm sure some of listeners will relate that the feelings around not having children pop up sometimes. I think if I had had a different childhood and maybe made my my choices in a different way, maybe started my heat, maybe if I'd met my husband 10 years earlier, then things might be different. But we grieve, we accept, and we accept the wonderful things that we do have. Yeah, I know. I think so many of us, and certainly the women in my community, as you put it, are childless, not by choice, by circumstance or are facing that as a very real possibility. And then coming to that crossroads of, okay, do I forge ahead, take matters into my own hands in some way, shape or form, sperm donor, that sort of thing, and make that my focus right now, or exploring what you were really about, that ambivalence became more clear. And you realize, no, my, my priority is to have this relationship, this commitment, this peace to be centered and grounded with my person. And as we wrap up, Catherine, I just want to again, underscore something that I think you've really described so beautifully in sharing your own journey. Sometimes when people find their person younger, not always, but sometimes because they are young and they haven't had the adult years to do the processing and the introspection and the work, sometimes they end up without realizing it finding a person who really fits those childhood dynamics, many of which probably weren't that healthy. And we call it in family systems, you're probably familiar with this from your, your work in, in counseling and therapy and your education therein. We call it the recapitulation of family of origin issues. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes people feel this intense attraction to someone because they're trying to, in the present day, correct and yeah. heal what was amiss yeah. Or awry in childhood. Not always. So, I mean, obviously, I have many friends, I have family members who got married in their early 20s. Sometimes it works perfectly and beautifully. But sometimes those of us who were later when we found our person, we could sometimes look at them and go, gosh, how'd they get so lucky to meet their person so young and not have to go through all this, these single years and the loneliness and all the things that we dealt with? But what I try to encourage my community and really your story just exemplifies so clearly 
so often, again, we wouldn't have picked it maybe, but here we are in our adulthood and farther along in our life than we would have hoped to meet our person. But the beautiful result of that is that if we have been able to begin to get that clarity, if we have been able to do some work, to to hire some coaching, to get into therapy, by the time that we meet our person, very often we have sorted through a lot of this stuff. And so I always want to encourage, because I know sometimes women think all these wasted years of loneliness and this relationship went sideways and this one didn't work. And here I am now 40, 50, and I'm still alone. And what was it all for? I always want them to to encourage them. It wasn't for nothing. Every relationship was a learning experience. Every period of loneliness and and those tears that we cried at night or the the anxious attachment we felt or the avoided attachment, if we're willing to examine it, it is all going to set us up to be prepared to be with our person in a way that will be really beautiful and have that emotional maturity and to, to have that solid, stable relationship, to find that sexy, as you yeah. put it, stability, safety is not boring. It's sexy. And yeah. so your journey really exemplifies that so beautifully. So I just wanted to underscore that. Yeah. And I think that that you describe about trying to rewrite our childhood story and engineer a different outcome. I talk about that a lot because a lot of my clients, we've tried to do that. I've, I tried to do that, I'm trying to change find someone who's emotionally distant, turn them into someone who's emotionally available and it's compelling and it's addictive and we can do it. We can do it. So (laughs) getting knowledge about that is so important. Mm -hmm. And I love talking about that, but you're, you're so right. It, It wasn't for nothing. We couldn't have the relationship that we have today without that relationship and that relationship and that one that went a bit wonky and, and, and that hurt and that heartache. And yeah, it would have been lovely if we hadn't have had to go through all that. But you know, right. the, the richness of the relationship that we end up with. I have a client who recently got engaged and she's over 50. She, through our sessions, she felt like she was the only one, nieces, nephews, everyone getting married. You know, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. is it happening to me? And it was just such a delight to get her her email with a photo of this guy engagement and this richness of relationship. And she had wanted to leave that. Like he wasn't right. He wasn't good enough. He wasn't, he, all these things, all this avoidance, all this self-sabotage, but we can have these rich relationships. And so nothing is wasted. I absolutely agree. And it will always have some grieving to do and some acceptance to do. And that will be an ongoing journey and it will be peeling the onion. But having someone by your side, if that is your desire, a stable partner, that brings so much healing and such a a rich element to our lives. It's really, really powerful and worth it. It's worth it. (laughs) It's worth it. Absolutely. Catherine, I'm thinking of, again, the the topic of the day was if you have avoided attachment and you see that this is part of your relationship experience and you're, you, you being so vulnerable in your writing and in your conversations we've had before and today, it's just so powerful. And I, it just gives so much hope. So I 
want us to leave on this hopeful note because there is hope. And like you said, there's a richness that we gain through all these experiences that we will bring to our partnership when we meet our person. And I just want to thank you so much for your time today. And I know that you've provided hope to listeners. If they are thinking, I would like more of this, of course, they can read your book and they can work with you and perhaps join a group. Let the listeners know how to connect with you further. Thanks, Karen. And to say that the if it's if it's not nice news that we are the common denominator, the good news is we can change. We can yes. change. We can change ourselves. So yeah, listeners can they can check out my book, How to Fall in Love. So on my website, katherinebaldwin.com, you'll find my book. You'll find our podcast from last time about self-love. You'll find my courses. So I have two courses, How to Fall in Love, Laying the Foundations and Date with Courage, Clarity and Confidence. And I host wonderful retreats called The Love Retreat in the UK and in Turkey. So yeah, katherinebaldwin.com. And you can follow me on Instagram, katherine.baldwin. And I'm on all the social channels. So thank you so much for, for this opportunity. I, I love chatting with you. So we can do it again at some point. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate your wisdom, your clarity, and all that you have to offer. It's, again, like we said at the, at the top, it's we've had similar journeys. And so I know my audience will resonate with this conversation and your vulnerability and your story. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you, Karen. The love and life hack for this week is, I think I'll just let Catherine say it in her own words. If it's not nice news that we are the common denominator, the good news is we can change. And if you feel like you want to make some changes in your approach to dating, please grab your free Empowered Dating Playbook by heading over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com. Thank you as always for joining us today. We hope you're enjoying this National Unmarried and Single Americans Week programming as much as we're enjoying sharing it with you. If you have just a moment to hop onto Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a couple nice words as a review, that helps others find the podcast and become part of the Love and Life family. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson April, and until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson April.